0: Earlier this year, an essay went viral with the title, The Whisper Campaign of Academic Trauma. I saw this proliferate across my social media by many academics whose experiences resonated with the author's experience of the way that people of color, but particularly black and brown scholars, are required to suppress this pain in academic spaces. This in turn was in response to another essay that had gone viral by the same author, with the title, Grad School is Trash for Students of Color and We Should Talk About That, which also resonated with many people. And I'm really happy to have on the podcast today the author of these amazing and important essays, Ciara Jones. I'm Dr. Zeinhao, this is PH Divas, we're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM-humanities divide and I'm recording this on the traditional ancestral and unsuceded territory of the Musqueam people at the University of British Columbia. And I'm really grateful that some um, online spaces dedicated to women of color academics actually connected me to Ciara. So welcome to the podcast, Ciara.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. That was a fantastic introduction. I feel really cool. <laughs> uh,
0: because you are cool. So how about introduce yourself?
1: Yeah. Um, hi, my name is Ciara Jones. I am a Master's of Theological Studies candidate at Harvard University. Um, I study womanist and queer theology, which I'm totally excited to, to dive into with Dr. Zine. Um, and yeah, I'm just really humbled and excited to be on the podcast. Um, as she mentioned, I'm also a writer. Um, you can check out my works on uh, Medium. So if you look me up, Ciara Jones, some of my work should pop up. But uh, I'm really excited to be here. So thanks for having me.
0: It's awesome to have you, and of course, I'll link the the essays and all the rest of her stuff because you have to go read it. Let's start with the initial essay, Grad School is Trash for Students of Color, and we should talk about that because yeah. you have so many fantastic lines, particularly about struggling with the abstraction of blackness in these academic spaces, especially as you're starting um, graduate school. Would you like to yeah. talk about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll go back. I'll actually go back before I even started at Harvard, I think, to put that essay in a bit of context. Um, but, I mean, for me, like, when I I had only been a year out of college, so I graduated at UC Berkeley in 2016. Um, and then for my gap year, I was working at a nonprofit, um, a phenomenal nonprofit named Rise Youth Center in Richmond, California. Um, I knew I wanted to return to grad school, but I kind of felt like, I think like many students that graduate from undergrad i just felt like even though i was doing really important work i felt really aimless and so when i got the acceptance letter from harvard which i never thought i would get i was just like overjoyed um the fact that it could be on scholarship was also a huge blessing so i was just really excited and so i came in i think like i came in with stars in my eyes
0: Hmm.
1: um and so i think by the time i wrote that essay like it was really from like a really real place of lamentation because my experience had just been like really really tumultuous and really painful and really dehumanizing. There's an incident in one of my classes that led up to me writing this essay where it was in one of my classes called Intro to Ministry Studies um, at Harvard University. And basically we were supposed to come up with projects we would want to do in communities that we care about. Um, the Harvard Divinity School is very ecumenical, meaning that like it's open to a lot of denominations. I think a big critique is still that it's very Christian-centered, and I think that's a very accurate critique, but it claims to be really open to a lot of denominations. And now like, that I have distance from the event, like I know that what was said was not meant to be malicious, but it doesn't change the fact that it was malicious and like very and it racist hurts. and problematic. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and I think you know, distance does distance wonders for pain, I think. But just like, basically we were supposed to come up with a project and one of, the, one of my colleagues was talking about how she wanted to work with um, implicit bias. She is a white woman. She wanted to work in communities that she cares about, which are other white communities and help them understand implicit bias. Um, if, if you all like don't know a lot about implicit bias it's basically the idea that like racism shows up in like the small things that we do like eye contact or holding a door or like helping someone who fell down like the idea is that like a white person will more likely make eye contact with another white person versus a black person and so it's the idea of like how, do, how does racism show up in our everyday lives and our everyday body movements and our everyday interactions um, and so one of my classmates was like was like, you know, was using an example and she was like, you know, one time I was in this particular city in the Midwest and I was walking down the street and I saw a black man and I thought he was going to rob this jewelry store. What but then I f- heard that black people in this Midwestern town are educated so like they wouldn't rob anything. <sighs> oh God. So we're in class and this is after like some, some racist things had happened in this class and some homophobic things that ha- happened in this class my professor did not do an adequate job of interrupting these things or speaking to these things and coming from like uc berkeley like i think the first time there was a couple incidents i was just like shocked i think because it's not that like racist and problematic things didn't happen at cal it was just that my colleagues had always called it out really quickly um and so this was the first time i've been in an academic environment where like things would happen in class and i would feel like I was not in my right mind because I was like, am I the only one experiencing this is racist or problematic? No one else is speaking up. But this incident was just so blatant that one of my good friends in class looked at me and texted me actually. And she was like, yo, did you hear that? And I was like, yeah. And my friend, like, I'm thankful for her. She spoke up and she was just like, you know, like that was just like, I'm deep. She was also a black woman. And she was just like, you know, I'm deeply offended. Um, and I'm deeply disappointed um that you said this in our class and not only that that none of our colleagues spoke up and then I spoke up and I said, Yeah, I think I've been in a lot of pain and I think it's really disheartening to know that like you as my classmate think that like as a white woman, think that I as a black person, like the only reason that I don't rob you or commit harm against your body is because I'm educated. Um, and it's really hard to see black people only humanized through like an educational white supremacist type of lens. And the idea that like black people who are not educated or are not middle class are not fully human or can act fully human is like a really violent thing to bring up in this classroom. But I think what was also hard is like my professor didn't speak up until we spoke up. And so she started defending herself. Finally, my professor was like, you know what, let's adjourn for the day. I think that um, what the students of color and the black woman I said in this class is really important. And I think that we all need to kind of meditate on this. <laughs> So we left class, we were all pretty heated. I think what was telling too, was like all the white women in my class like were crying.
0: Oh God, yeah. white women's tears.
1: Yes, like a lot of white And I think what was interesting too, was I also got to see a generation separation. Like younger white women were trying to interject with the older white women in my course, to be like, just shut up and listen to these women. Older white women were the ones that were really crying, which I thought was really interesting to see that generation separation of how white women were interacting with what we were saying. And there have been other incidents. I had a black female colleague in that class talk about, you know, like the fear that she has in speaking up in class, imposter syndrome. Instead of hearing her, white women kept being like, what do we have to do to make it so you feel comfortable in class? Like, what do we have to do to make it so you'll speak up? And then she was just like, you know, I just wanted to share my pain. I didn't want to be fixed. And so, like, there had just been slow incidents of just building of just a lot of racial tension in the course. But I didn't write the essay, I think, until the next class because we came in the class and a friend of mine, like, I think in a very valiant attempt of, allyship wanted us to debrief the incident. I didn't want to debrief it, I think as a black person who had already spoken up, I just wanted to move on, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so we did a debriefing exercise, which actually like, I'm kind of thankful for, it ended up being I think really telling, um, where everyone debriefed basically why they didn't speak up for the incident, but all the black people were like, we did speak up, so like, and what was interesting was like, all the white people were going around and sharing why they did not speak up about what happened in class. And everyone kept saying that like, they didn't speak up out of fear, Which made me really, really angry because I think that fear is a luxury that white people have that people of color do not. Because if I'm always afraid to speak up for my humanization, like I'll always just be dehumanized. But like white people aren't the ones being dehumanized by this type of language. And so there's this option to speak up or not to speak up because you're not the bodies that are implicated in the kind of language that was put forth in our discussion.
0: What were they afraid of exactly? Or who who were they afraid of?
1: (laughs) I like. Like, see, like, I really don't know what they were for okay. you. I, I, I really don't know, you know? And so I think, you know, what my friend and I said, uh, my friend's name is Courtney, actually, she's amazing, shout out to Courtney. But what Courtney and I were saying in class was that like, your fear tells me that you actually don't know any black people. Like, what you're telling me is that you've ever you've never befriended a black person, and that you live a very segregated life. Because like, I, if I as a cis person have a friend who is trans who I see being dehumanized, like, I love that person and I care for that person. And I will stand up for that person because I value their humanity. But I think when we actually don't have friends outside of our communities, um, what happens is like, I think this fear of this, like this this fear that maybe I would say like, no, don't speak up for me or something. Like, I don't know if it was a fear of blackness. I don't know if it was a fear of myself. Like, I took it as not a fear of whiteness, but a fear of blackness, like a fear that like, I would snap at you for trying to stand up for me. Like that's kind of like what I was teasing out like a fear that it would not be enough for mm. me or for Courtney or for other black people in this course. And so I think, yeah, that's how I took it. it as like a fear of like actually like blackness, not a fear of like retaliation for whiteness, but a fear that we would say that what they did wasn't enough. And what I said was that like, that tells me that you're not in community with people of color and black people and that tells me that you don't know enough black people to be able to stand up for my community and like i would appreciate if you stopped living your lives segregated mm-hmm. but i also think that yeah i just said like you know i think that it's a luxury i think that i'm really disappointed um and i think that at divinity school like we need to do better of like standing in the gap for bodies that are being dehumanized and like i don't have a lot of sympathy for the fear that you feel yeah and i think that's why i went and wrote the article after because i just like I think after that was so eye-opening to me, of like white students really don't, like really do read about us, but they really have no idea what to do with us, like when our bodies are in front of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, like I think that, I think I have a lot of patience, as I, I don't know why I have so much patience, but I've been having a lot of patience lately, Um, and so I do see my white colleagues growing, and I have grace for that growth, I do. And I think I have grace for that growth because I can't hold anger and resentment, it'll just come against my own body. Um, So I do have a lot of grace for that growth in that process, But it just made me realize that just because we read about things and just because white people read about the dehumanization of of queer people or trans people or black people um or brown people doesn't mean they actually know what to do with us in real lives in our real lives and that theorizing about someone is very different than standing in the gap for their bodies
0: i i totally agree there's such a there's such a gap and like there it's easier for them to read it and it's something an issue that's far away that doesn't implicate them Mm -hmm. and then it becomes so jarring for like Black scholars and other scholars of color when, well, one of my friends was at our first academic conference and she had this moment where it was like a panel on blackness with all white scholars and she realized she was the only black person in the room. And to like have, probably they're trying to bring in conversation like um, black uh, studies stuff, but at the same time like to have dehumanization and her pain being discussed in a way that was completely uh, abstracted was so alienating.
1: And i think what's crazy too is like and i don't know if she expressed this but i know what i heard from other black scholars or other brown scholars in that kind of situation is like even as like black people like our knowledge of ourselves is decentered as being like the most exceptional or the most knowledgeable or the or like having the most prowess Do you know yeah. what i mean like even when i say like as a black person this is what i experience someone might like turn to a white scholar who studies blackness and be like is what she's saying right mm-hmm. and so it's like it's like our bodies are decentered as being like adequate enough to even name our own experiences, which I think is really strange. And so I think I can be in classes where like a white person says something about black people that I don't think is accurate, but my lived experience isn't enough to refute that what he said or she said.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So it's almost like, I don't know. I feel like we're not trusted to be able to even name what our experiences are in the world and the white scholars who study us are seen as like the actual Owners of the knowledge of what it means to be black in America um, or anywhere else in the world and that that's really struck me as very strange
0: Which seems so dissonant because of course like black studies as a field is supposed to like come out of lived experience and I'm thinking of like a lot of foundational earlier work like um, but some of us are brave which really try to make the the emphasis that that black intellectuals are drawing from like from lived experiences, and so there's not such a separation between like non-academic and academic. And yeah. yet, the academy is this place where the knowledge somehow becomes abstracted and reified, and then people can become accredited to have knowledge over communities that they're not a part of.
1: Oh, 100 percent. And I think like as I mean, I, I I try to as a divinity student really be in touch with lived experiences because I think like just because I'm a black scholar doesn't mean that I'm exempt from like, from being inaccessible. I think when I look at art like essays that I write for school or for class, like it's a very inaccessible language, it's language that's very philosophical, that's very heavy in theology, that like an everyday person wouldn't really connect with. And so I also try to keep mindful of that, but like, the academy is an intellectual bubble um, that doesn't always I think indicate like what's happening on the ground, what's happening in real people's lives. And so I think even as a black scholar, like I know that my blackness itself doesn't mean that I'll be connected to like what's happening for my community as a whole, mm-hmm. uh, because like when you're in the academy, it's a particular I have a particular relationship to my blackness that I think doesn't always translate to like what every, everyday black people are thinking and feeling and doing. And so I think like as academics, it's, it has to be an everyday practice of being in touch with people outside of the academy to make sure our work actually has meaning beyond like I published a book. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that goes into my larger critique of the academy being like really based on like individual gain and not on like communal uplift
0: yeah, I think that's that's so you're that's so accurate. I'd also wanted to say that as you're talking about language, what really struck me with um reading the essays as someone who didn't know you like was like you were so good at translating um this to I think a, an audience that wasn't necessarily in the humanities wasn't necessarily even a non academic and it was really powerful the way that you translated your thoughts and experiences in both of those. I was wondering, so what was the, well, I guess like the second essay was sort of talking a bit about the the blowback that you got for the first, but yeah. what was the experience of writing about it and like the initial reaction from people in your program or also people online that you knew and didn't know?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I want to give a quick shout out to my brother who is also an academic who is phenomenal. <laughs> and so um, the first time I wrote the piece, I'm pretty like, I'm actually pretty insecure about my own voice. It's something that I'm still coming into and learning is valuable, I think, especially online, because people are so much more likely to comment with a critique than a compliment. Um, and so I definitely have fear around sharing my words. <laughs> um, and so I like to lean on my family or close friends to be like, yo, is this good? Like, I think I'm just now learning to be like, if I write something, trust that it's good. But I sent this to my brother first and I was like what do you like think about this like I don't know and he was and he was so kind to me and he was just like yo I think that this is brilliant because I wrote it like I remember I wrote it I was just like fuming when I wrote it I just gotten out of class and we had done that debrief and like everyone was saying they were afraid and I was so angry that like my humanity had been so erased by like white fear which is very violent actually white, white fear is just as violent I think <laughs> um, as white supremacy because mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. it's still like what happened in that for me, what happened in that classroom was like me and my black colleagues are being dehumanized, but white people still made it about themselves and how they were feeling in that moment. And like could not even think about having empathy or sympathy for what I was feeling. Um and I think I was so angry by that, like the way that like whiteness is still enveloped by itself, even when like blackness or brownness is being dehumanized in the moment, like like I think just like like destroyed my soul a little bit. <laughs> I was just like, yo, like this is really, really deep. Um, so when I wrote it, I wrote it just like I think I was like, just like crying a bed. I wrote it in like a few hours and I was just it was just like an angry write. Mm-hmm. Um and so I'd send it to my brother um and I had to thank him for editing that and for making me yeah, for making me feel like my voice had meaning, which I don't think that black people always get to feel. Um and so yeah, after the response, I didn't think it would be big. I thought I had twenty followers on Medium at the time. So I just put it on my medium. I'd written, I've written some stuff. I'd written for how posts for a little bit. And had some things that had gone like a little bit viral, but not this viral ever, ever. And so I just like posted it on my medium, 20 followers posted it on my Facebook, went to bed. And I think I woke up <laughs> and it had like 10,000 shares. or something.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> and I was just like, Oh my gosh. And then I was like, is this how things go viral? Like when you have no intention and like when you just sat right in the middle of the night? I was like, there really is no rhyme or reason to going viral. That's what I learned from this. And so I came on the campus and like I had to leave pretty quick. So like I am used to like, so Berkeley has about like 40,000 students, like 35,000. So even if I've written things that I've gotten like 5,000 shares, like no one on campus knows that I did it. Do you know what I mean? Like there's anonymity because like everyone's amazing at Cal and like no one's really worried about you but my program is still big for a grad program it's 400 students but i came on campus and like everyone knew do you know what i mean like and i and i was like panicking everyone knew and i didn't really know how to engage with that especially because like my program is mostly white so it was like a lot of white colleagues coming up to me like people were coming up to me that were white and were like yo like when you said this like did you mean me and like am i a good ally and like can we go to a beer can you tell me how to be a better ally like things like that and I was like, I'm too tired for this, <laughs> I'm like really tired. I think I also felt like, oh snap, like I'm at a private institution. I've never been in a private institution. Like, am I gonna get in trouble? Um, Cause I don't know how private institutions work as well. Like I know public institutions, I have freedom of speech. I have no idea the legalese are on private institutions. So I felt a lot of fear. I think I just felt too seen. And so I remember just coming into my room and like panicking. I called my mentor. And I was like, what do I do? And she was on the phone with me while people were coming up to me. And she's like, okay, like get off campus, like go home, relax, drink some coffee, uh, drink some tea and just like go to bed, you know? And so it was just a little bit overwhelming for me at the time, to be honest with you.
0: And it seems like really overwhelming was not just the response, but even in that moment, as people, white people around you were trying to be like, be allies, that was also demanding so much more labor from you. Yes. And that was hard.
1: yeah, I think that what I wanted in that moment from people that knew me and like cared for me was like just to be held. I think and to be like, yo, like you put this online, like it's really viral. It was also on Huff Post. I actually took it off Huff Post. That was a decision I made because I was just so stressed and I just wanted it
0: to be in a personal
1: place because I didn't want it to get too far because I knew some professors had seen it. I like and I the professional and political is very different in Boston it's not, it's not a world that I know well. It's a world that people are groomed for. Do you know mm. what I mean?
0: Oh God. Um, okay.
1: And it's not the most welcoming of radical thought and radical voice. And it's not the most welcoming of critique. And so as a master's student, I also felt fear. I ended up writing the whisper campaign because I got really angry at black and brown students in my circle because like sometimes I would walk up and they, one, I think people took it as like, I think some people took it as like oh she wanted her name out there and like she wanted to be seen in this way and as like a mark of competitiveness that i was not trying to put out um and so i felt a little bit targeted um and number two i felt like people students of color that wanted to support me still would say things like oh like are you afraid or like are you this or that and even when i wasn't that afraid it just started to make me afraid i had people that would be like oh i loved your article but like you know like that was really bold i had someone one of my like someone that I consider a friend call me and be like, I saw your article, it reached all the way over here. But like as a black student, like you need to know that like if you want letters of rec and if you want this or that, like you can't say this. And I remember hanging up the phone and being really angry. Because like for me, I'm like, yo, if you're my friend, like you'll encourage me to be authentic in my voice before you encourage me to politic for a job that I don't want anyway. Um, and so I think I just felt like people really projected their fear onto me but it also was a really great glimpse into like what black and brown students feel on campuses. Because I think that what people were saying to me wasn't always with malicious intent. I think it was with a real desire to protect me, but what does it mean when black and brown students have a very real fear of their voice and their authentic feelings in the academy? I think it says a lot about the silencing that's been going on for sure.
0: I just wanna quote um, from your essay. There's so many fantastic lines, uh, but I think that these ones in particular speak to some of the essence of the essay. Um, and so from Sierra's essay, as we repress our own pain, we begin to inadvertently project our repression onto others. We tell other students of color that they should not speak out, partly to protect them from our similar rejection and partly to save ourselves from having to excavate our own trauma. Watching someone live their truth can be incredibly uncomfortable if we were refusing to recognize our own, which was amazing. And I had so many friends when they were sharing it, like excerpt that particular quotation.
1: Well, oh, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, I want to shout out Brene Brown. <laughs> um, I'm a huge Brene Brown fan. Like, I would, I don't want to do a PhD, but if I did, it would be in sociology under Brene Brown because I think that she's amazing. I mean, a lot of the, the pieces that I've kind of been drafting now for the summer have a lot more to do with, like, love and self-love. I think they've gotten a bit away from racial critique. I mean, there's still a lot of racial criti- critique in there. But I think, yeah, like, what I found was I would go home from a day at school and I would feel anxiety about my writing. Um, I would feel a lot of shame about my voice. Like I would really, like there were days where I really felt like, wow, like I did something wrong. Like, Like, I really felt like I'm an idiot. Like I have achieved admittance to Harvard University and my colleagues are right. Like, why would I sully that? Like, why would I even put that on? Like, why would I even Engage with things Harvard has done wrong. This is Harvard. Like, why would I even engage with my dehumanization? And then I remember like meditating and being like, this is not okay. <laughs> like, like this is violence and this is traumatic and like what I'm feeling is not mine. Um, but a culture of the academy that's really toxic, where we tell people to like leave their truth at the door to be palatable. And if I live this way, like I will be a shell of a human being. Mm-hmm. That's really okay. how I felt. Like I just felt like no degree is worth my soul Um, and I think that we ask black and brown students to like leave everything on the ground leave every part of them that they love leave their stories leave their narratives leave their truths on the ground to be palatable in these networks and I think that that's a loveless thing to do
0: the problem is like even with that type of well-intentioned policing even if you played by that game that's often not enough and so Mm -hmm. it really is a type of policing which does not actually translate to having better treatments, which of course in itself is problematic. I have a friend who also has been like reprimanded by colleagues like with the sort of finger wagging that saying like, oh, I'm thinking the best for you as a woman of color. Mm -hmm. And my friend's like, no, like I wanna, if I'm gonna be in the academy, I I want to be able to represent myself. But also I know that even if I didn't do those things, if I didn't speak up, I'd still be considered an angry black woman.
1: So. Like it doesn't matter what, yes, like yes. Yeah, they're accurate. Like. Yeah, I'm gonna, people are gonna assume what they assume about women of color in general, so why not live your truth? Like Mm -hmm. why not be honest about how you're feeling? Um, And as someone who is really trying to cultivate an authentic voice, I understand the fear of it. Like there's been a lot, there's been articles I've wanted to write for the past few months that I have been too afraid to write. Like I felt a lot of anxiety about my own voice. And so I understand why women of color in particular feel a lot of anxiety when they speak out because we're often left alone. I would say like my experience in this program, and I think my colleagues all express this in different ways, has been at times like a very lonely one. I think particularly if you're in the academy and trying not to buy into the academy, it's a really lonely road. And I think, you know, the reason I wrote the Whisper Campaign of Academic Trauma, what I get in there is a way that, what I get in there is the way our identities become like like parasitic with the academy. Um, And the way that like we kind of like feed off the academy and the academy feeds off of us for our sense of self, Mm -hmm. Um, we kind of lose ourselves in it. And I get it, like it's opulent. Like I get that if I walk off campus and if I'm in in another state or even farther out in Boston and I say I go to Harvard, like I understand there's a response, a response that like of reverence, a response that can really, that can feel, that can fill you in a moment. But like when you walk away from that person, like you're still left with the real life experiences that you're having at this university that are not enough, that are not fulfilling, that are not good and oftentimes dehumanizing. And I just think that we shouldn't ignore that for namesake Mm -hmm. Um, because like, and I don't know, I think think once you get a degree, like yes, a Harvard degree follows you forever, a Cornell degree follows you forever, a Princeton degree, all those things. But I think it starts to fade. I think the way, when you get away from the school, like you no longer attend there, you're an alumni. And so you have distance from that experience. And I think if you aren't well now, you're not gonna be well later. Like, Like those experiences are gonna follow you. The trauma from the experience will follow you. So why not engage with what's actually happening? And like, cause I think if enough students engage with it Ivy Leagues, like what's actually happening on the ground, there can be administrative changes that better care for students of color. But I think out of fear of retaliation and fear of like acknowledging that like your dream might actually might not be going well, which is very scary. <laughs> um, I don't know, I just think that out of fear we don't acknowledge the pain that's present. And fear, or make, fear that makes sense, but I think fear that just ultimately will leave us really unfulfilled
0: and really broken. Because mm-hmm. I think that there's also such an expectation that we're supposed to be grateful or yes. that, like we're doing it for other people and like a lot of people yeah. that we love are very happy for us and yeah. so it's easy to become invested in the power of the name because it does open doors and you want to be able to use it to open doors for others and then your identity becomes implicated in it in ways that like end up like shaping us in ways that we would rather not do and I think it is parasitic is such a great way to put it as you did
1: yeah i think uh i thought of it because in one of my classes we talked about how whiteness is parasitic and blackness. so I think that's mm-hmm. why i thought of it so shout out to my professor but i think um yeah there's a there's symbi- a symbiosis that happens but i didn't want to use that word because that can be a positive word mm-hmm. <laughs> um but i think yeah i do consider it parasitic and i think i was actually talking to one of my friends who's a postdoc in philosophy at Harvard and she, and I was just kind of lamenting to her my frustration at black and brown colleagues that haven't held me down. And she was really, what I appreciate about her perspective was she also was like, I understand your anger because they didn't hold you in a way that you needed to be held. And we talked about how that doesn't come from malice, but like from the own places that people are in their process. And so I think like what I've really been meditating on um, the last couple of weeks is grace for my own process, but grace for others too, like I think, that like we can commit a lot of violence when we're in a place of insecurity. Um, And I don't think that's always because we mean malice upon someone else, but we give advice and like we care for people from where we are. And so I think I've really started to see this not as like a personal attack against me, but as a systemic issue in our academy of students who have low self-esteem, like Mm -hmm. of students who feel like their work is like the whole sum of themselves. And like, how do we teach academics that they're more than what they write And that they're more than what they—they're more than just a student. That they're a full person that has value. Um, And how has our culture of critique in the academy really taken away people's ability to care for themselves? Because that's—I think that's what I've seen the most.
0: Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, does this um, speak to the particular work that you're interested in doing during your master's? Um, I'd love to hear about what you're doing.
1: Oh yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you for asking. Actually, yeah, I mean, so I like I said, I study queer and womanist theology. Um, womanist theology is a particular like, sect of Christianity um, written by black women that affirms black women through biblical texts. And so it kind of, it rejects the way the Bible has been used to promote racist ideology and rejects the way the Bible has been used to promote sexist ideology and like claims that God affirms black womanhood wholly and fully without hesitation or reservation. Um, and then queer womanist theology speaks to the way that womanist theology didn't really think about, not didn't think about, but didn't always engage with queer bodies um and how queer black women are also affirmed by biblical text um and so i look a lot at the ways i care a lot about the ways people have been dehumanized by institutions particularly spiritual institutions and what does it mean to like to reclaim bodies that have not been seen holy as holy so what does it mean to look at black bodies as holy as black women as holy um as all queer bodies as holy but particularly black queer bodies just because that's what i study but i believe that all bodies are holy and so but i think also like as i've been in school like i would consider like queer folk, queer folks my ministry but now i also consider like student health like a ministry that i'm really really engaged in yeah and supporting students of color which isn't always an easy work because sometimes like i said like people don't want that kind of support and sometimes students of color are like yeah i don't want this and i'm like okay yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I think for students of color who want that kind of support and want to engage with this, uh, the ways that the academy can be dehumanizing, like I see it as a type of ministry. Yeah. So yeah.
0: Yeah. I was wondering how did you get to this, like, from your undergrad? And I think what's so interesting is, I think in our wider culture there tends to be this simplistic sort of notion that like religion is always counterposed to like progressive ideology, and so it's mm-hmm. usually seen that like in order to care about queer issues, for instance. It has mm-hmm. to be within a secular space, which of course is a very artificial division. So how yeah. did you realize that like going to divinity school was something that you were interested in? And especially I'm curious because I've actually never had a chance to talk to someone who was studying at Divinity School.
1: Yeah, I yeah, it is I guess it is kind of it's I think it's I don't know if it's a dying field, I hope not. But I do think it's <laughs> kind of yeah, it's it is a bit random. <laughs> mm-hmm. But actually, I mean I was I was I've been really into my faith, my Christian faith since I was a kid. When I was thirteen I got really into christianity i wanted to be a pastor like ever since i was 13 years old i can't explain it to you i've just like always thought it was the coolest job um and i think it was because like people would come into church like with financial issues and physical ailments and marital issues and like deaths in the family and i would watch people like over the months like leave so encouraged and i always thought like that is like the greatest job in the world to like make someone believe in their own life again, like that is the coolest. That is like such an honor, like to look at someone that's like downtrodden or defeated and make them believe in themselves. Like I think that that's really cool, and it also gave me like this worldview of, of like grace and forgiveness and mercy. Like and I think and I think actually that's one thing that sometimes I lament in my own writing. Like I want grace to come through more. That like even when I talk about like incidents last semester like I'm not saying that from a place of anger or rage like but I understand that like claiming how I feel about something doesn't mean that I also like have to hate you like I can claim that you like I can claim that you like perpetuated harm against me but I don't have to be angry about it like I can like move into a place of forgiveness like I'm allowed to claim my anger and I'm allowed to let it go and so I do kind of wish that came through my writing more like I definitely want grace to be like uh, I want grace and love to be the the primary the primary things that come through my writing but um yeah and so i think like my faith just gave me like a really a worldview that really worked for me um where i could see everyone as intrinsically worthy and everyone as intrinsically valuable um and see myself as intrinsically worthy and valuable and i loved that um and then when i got to college i started also to realize the way that like my church was like way too conservative and homophobic and problematic and racist and so i really had this like undoing around 20 years old where i was like yo the church sucks <laughs> and this <laughs> sucks and this is not inclusive and I hate it. Um, And then I started meeting like a lot of queer Christians, um, folks that had my identity. um, And I really like reconciled and really believe that like God still loved them and still loved their communities. Even when the dominant church narrative was like problematic as hell. (laughs) And so then I was like, and I also felt like for me stepping away from my faith made me it left me with a lot of emptiness like I realized that like like being connected with faith just makes me feel like a full person like being connected to a higher power it works for me health-wise mental health-wise emotionally like it's just what makes my body work the best it's what I feel the best in the world and so I was like yo like I still love God I think God's dope I think people suck but I think God's dope um and there has to be a way to merge these two things and so for me like everything I do with social justice like comes out of like my faith and like my belief um, that people are intrinsically worthy and valuable and that like, with, that co- like with, the, with the idea that we're worthy means we need to treat other people with respect. And so like, it kind of comes down to simplistic terms for me where my faith, yeah, influences all the work that I do, it comes from out of that. Because like, I'm, I carry a lot of empathy um, and I think that amount of empathy would crush me if I didn't have like a higher power to lean on to process that empathy mm-hmm. and to kind of lay that burden down at the end of the day. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a way that, yeah, it just works for me. I, I can't really explain it. It just works for me. And I think that, I think if people really did read biblical text in the way it was meant to be read, then we'd have a lot more Christians who were social advocates. But I think because we read biblical text from, like, a lens of white supremacy as a way to protect what America once was, we lose all the messaging and it becomes, like, a tool of violence. But I think if folks, like, were really trying to, like, Like, fuck with Jesus. (laughs) I think that they would come out with very different terms of what it means to be a Christian today. But I think the term is just a hot mess now because of who is the face of Christianity.
0: Yeah. Like, um, so at the time that we're recording this, of course, I think it was Jeff Sessions that has been abusing this one biblical quotation that in the past was also used to justify slavery, to validate from a Christian basis, the separation of children from their families.
1: Yeah. It's super violent and i was tweeting about this yesterday the way that like the the bible is used to obscure violence and i also think that comes into another pathology i took a class last semester called race and religion um, and the way that like whiteness is co-constituted with with christianity and the way that whiteness is made exceptional and claims exceptional divinity through christianity um which also is another reason I, i i go to divinity school is because like i think we ignore how much christianity influences our politics and our political decisions a particular kind of christianity Uh, white supremacist christianity um and so i do think where that like actually progressive kind of progressives kind of miss what's happening politically is because we've disengaged too much with religion and i don't Mm -hmm. even mean in practice Mm -hmm. but i mean in politics um and really engaging with what's happening religiously for people because i think sometimes like as a progressive um we can be like yo like this is just right like why don't people see that this is right but like when like when you've been indoctrinated into a church and a church tells you like separating children from their families which is violent and abhorrent and disgusting like is of god it i i've seen it warp people's minds where they really think like oh this is of god right or they like really choose to believe it and so sometimes i think as progressives we don't engage with faith enough but i also think we've allowed in the media like for conservatives to have a claim over faith in a way that's not actually what's Mm -hmm. happening like this like like right now, I work at a church that's gay-affirmed, black and gay-affirming, and it's the coolest church ever, right, and so there are so many churches that are doing this work. I came from a queer-affirming church in Oakland, and so there are so many Christian churches that really are social advocates and are doing phenomenal work, they're just not the ones that make the headlines. Um, so I think that's, there's also an issue of media representation, too.
0: Yeah, like there's, I, well, I guess I'm thinking of the work of, oh dear, um, M. Jackie Alexander, who wrote Pedagogy is a Crossing, uh, which is a book Mm. I thought was really awesome. And she really makes this great point about the way that we've sort of acceded the space of the spiritual and what does it mean to like reclaim that? um, Which I think was, her work is very beautiful and powerful.
1: No, it's amazing. And I mean, I just met with um, the executive director of RISE, who I I mentioned earlier where I used to meet, and I talked to her a bit about, um, what do it mean to do like nonprofit chaplaincy? Um, which I which I think should be a field. I don't think it's even a field, but, but we just talked about it. Um, if it is a field, let me know. I'm sure if someone listens and it is a field, <laughs> comment and let me know that it's a field because that's great. But and, and what we talked about is like uh, a fear of, of religion and, or a fear of, a fear of any kind of faith. I don't want to say religion, but just the faith of the spiritual um, in progressive spaces. Like I think that there's a lot of rejection because it's been aligned and like, right, like, and like, people feel this way, rightfully so, but it has been aligned with like being very transphobic and homophobic, xenophobic, Islamophobic, and all these things are true. So I can't even look at someone and be like, you're wrong. But I think that, I do think that also what I see a lack of sometimes in progressive spaces is hope mm, or grace mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, or love. I think I loved my time at UC Berkeley. Um, one of the hardest things for me in activist spaces, though, was like feeling like there was no way to learn because I didn't want to seem like in any way I wasn't there yet. You know what I mean? Like I didn't want to be the one that like didn't know this terminology um, or didn't quite know how to engage with this issue. But that meant that there were gaps in my social knowledge that I never claimed publicly because I was ashamed or embarrassed. But people have a trajectory. So what does it mean when people come up with good intentions, I'm not talking about being patient for people who are violent? Um, but what does restorative justice look like when someone doesn't know terminology or how do we teach people or how do we bring them into the fold? And I do think that's where like faith or a spiritual, a spiritual practice comes in because then it means that like we can have grace for folks um, or a practice of forgiveness or a ritual of forgiveness um, or a ritual for inclusivity. But I think the, the one downfall of activist spaces is that they also become a launching pad for careers. So you also see career career climbing, you see other ways that we can kind of end fight with one another and I always wonder how a faith practice could en- could engage with those things.
0: Yeah, I think that also speaks to, well, there's been a lot of um, pieces in the last couple of years about the way that social justice spaces tend to revolve around like exile culture or call out culture. Yeah. And you're really yeah. talking to being like, what does it mean, as you think you said, to, to hold people and to try to make, not just be in the space of the negative, but how do you create? How do you flourish? How is there thriving as opposed oh, to yeah. just critique? Yes.
1: yes, because I mean, as human beings, like, again like I'm not I'm not talking about living space for people who are being actively transphobic anti mm-hmm, mm-hmm. black or racist that's, that's not what I'm saying but I think for folks that are like like I have definitely like said wrong things in spaces like I just have like yeah I, same I, yeah. I, yeah I mean coming from a conservative Christian background and like one not even having knowledge of my own queerness um and I'm sure saying problematic things along that journey you know like because you're unlearning when we're in activist spaces I don't think it's learning as much as it's unlearning um, like we're unlearning so much like what you're saying is like what these spaces do is they like challenge dominant culture which we're saturated in every day and so we have to give people grace in that process to unlearn for themselves because like there, like there's so many things happening like one you're like you learn something new which makes you engage with your own life experience different maybe you think about memories and you realize that's actually a traumatic memory or like in that moment something racist was happening or homophobic was happening your family like You're learning about your family ties. Like, so many things are coming up in those spaces. At least for me, like, I'm, like, when I learn something new, I don't know, about anti-Blackness, I look back at a moment from even, like, elementary school, and I can be like, wow, like, I was experiencing racism there. Like, that's what was happening for me. Um, And so I just, what I've learned is so much is coming up for people that, like, maybe someone will say something harmful to me, and they didn't mean it, but it's someone that I'm in community with. So I can call them in, and I can say, like, yo, this harm me in this way. And if they show, like, a true desire to get better, then that should be... I think that can be enough, but I think that we can move forward in relationship because all of my friends, like they've they've said things to me that weren't accurate. I've said things to them. um, And I know for myself, like the first time I feel like I really ever really messed up an activist space, like that someone said like, oh, that was the wrong thing to say. Like it took me out for like a day. Like I felt so bad. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking like this kind of guilt isn't sustainable if I want to do this work. And I think what call out culture does is it guilts people into silence, um, but it doesn't let them engage with grace. Because I think what we really want to say when someone says something wrong is, I believe in you enough to tell you this was wrong and I believe you can be better and I believe you to be a good person. So like, let's get up and keep walking together. But What happens is we say like, you are wrong and like you messed up and leave. And so then people leave and they feel downtrodden and dejected and I think like, what does that do for the community space? I don't think it's useful.
0: Mm -hmm. To sort of go back a little bit, um, since you said you work on a womanist theology, but also queer womanist theology, And I'm sure that like, perhaps our listeners are not as familiar with those fields. Would you like to talk a little bit about like maybe the intellectual history of that, or like names people should know about, and like yeah. what people talk um, about?
1: Women's psychology has some great names. Emily Towns, who I believe is the dean of Vanderbilt. I think so. Let me. I'm looking it up to make sure I'm <laughs> accurate about. It. Uh, yeah, she's associate dean of academic affairs at Vanderbilt. Um, There's Pamela L. Lightsey. She was at BU Divinity School. I believe now she's switched to Chicago. She wrote a book called Our Lives Matter about um, what it means to be a black queer woman and a Christian who, she's amazing. Um, Yeah, I think she left U Chicago, but I know she was at the Divinity School at BU and she was incredible. Um, God, there's so many names. Um, Actually, one of my classes dealt with like Like older womanist like scholars who might not even think of themselves as womanist at the time but like are like womanists they're cool um one of my professor does work with a woman named zilpha elah um he was a traveling preacher in like the 1800s um and so like black women have been doing this like basically womanist theology is like yo black women have been preachers forever even when the climate was extremely unwelcome like Mm -hmm. extremely unwelcome um and they'll continue to do it forever because like black women are doing it because they love god not for any kind of acclaim Um, Queer Womanist Thought is a bit newer, so Womanist Theology's been around for a while. Um, There's Jacqueline Grant, um, who was at Bennett College, or I don't know where she's at now, but she's also a theologian who was incredible. So there's just a whole bunch of black theologians, black female theologians that are doing phenomenal work. Oh, another book I wanna plug, actually. There's a book called Stand Your Ground, um, which is about the theological history um, of the murder of Trayvon Martin, like what was happening Mm -hmm. theologically in Stand Uh Your Ground laws.
0: Interesting.
1: Which is which is an incredible text, um, also written by a queer, um, Black woman pastor. Uh, so the history goes back far. Like I said, like when you're looking at like Zilpha Elah or other uh, Black theologians, uh, Old Elizabeth, like woman around the 1800s, like this work has been happening since slavery. That Black women have been preaching, and it's also been happening since slavery that just like white theology was unwelcoming to Black male preachers, that Black theology has been very unwelcoming to Black female preachers. I did my research, my undergrad research actually, my undergraduate thesis um, on like, black female clergy members and I interviewed about four, um, all who had their Master's of Divinity or higher. And they all talked about you know, like men getting hired above them in churches even when they only have a BA or a high school degree. Um, they talked about the church being unwelcome to them because they were single. And so we still uh, we talked about they talked about like men being paid more than them in the church still or being let go for no apparent reason or being told that women should sit in the back of the church and so these are still narratives that we have happening um, in the black church and the church at large and so both of these womanist theology and queer womanist theology simply engage with what it means to be a black woman in the church and kind of say like yo like we have a long long way to go um, but we're here and we're not going to go anywhere.
0: I guess on that note then what do you see is happening uh next as you finish up your uh masters degree uh, I, th- I guess that's a, that's a huge <laughs> question but like uh, I feel like you have such uh aspirations and like it's going to be really exciting whatever you choose to do but
1: Well thank you <laughs> you're making me excited because I feel scared um it depends some days I'm like I'm going to get ordained and then like open up like a the large i mean like my dream well i don't put my, put out my dream because i hold my dreams close to my chest but um i would love to get ordained um and do inclusive ministry um i would love to write more i would love to get like a job at like a at, as a columnist columnist somewhere um like working around like religion um and race and like probably like self love self help i would love to do self help work um so yeah, I'd love to be a columnist, and then, on the side, I would like to to be an ordained minister and I'd like to work in a church um maybe like do like healing circles with youth, They're like doing like queer spirituality retreats um really trying to bring kids in and not like not even even though like I identify as a Christian a lot of my spiritual work, like I just did a panel um with the locks collective in in Boston, um which is the lesbian of color the lesbians of color collective i don't know what the s stands for actually. Um, <laughs> But uh, they're, they're incredible and they invited me to their queer alternative spirituality panel. Um, and so we got to I got to, to work with a whole bunch of queer healers in the area. And so when I see myself doing spiritual work, it's not just like, oh, like bringing people to accept Jesus. I'm not an evangelist, I'm not really about it. Like, if you're down with Jesus, it's cool. If you're not, cool. I just want people to feel like they have spiritual value. So I see myself doing a lot of interfaith work with kids. Yeah, so I like to have multiple jobs. Interfaith work and then writing full time would be the coolest combination of jobs ever. I would I would die happy. That would be amazing.
0: I feel um, like you would be amazing at it. Like I, you are religiously like a public intellectual now that's been speaking <laughs> like speaking truth and other people's truth. That, like, I'm just really excited for what you go on to do. As I said before, um, are there, I guess, any clo- other closing things you'd like t- to bring up?
1: I'm trying to think. Um i think yeah like be i guess be on the lookout for any more work that i write that's cool when you guys read it <laughs> when you all read it i feel really cool um, yeah i think i think i'm just like really grateful that you had me on um i'm grateful that well, actually one of my friends reached out to you which was really cool so thank you to that friend for reaching out to ph and letting me know that you all shared my work um and thank you for what you do um thank you for the um. for the podcast that you put out That really helped me Um, engage with the Academy better, and also just feel like a full person in a place where I can't always feel like that. So I'm really grateful for what you all do on this podcast, (laughs) um, and I'm really humbled to to be a part of it in any kind of way.
0: Oh, thank you so much. And I do think, like because I feel like grace has been one of the themes of the discussion here, like you've been sending so much grace out into the world, and I'm sure that, I hope that you've been hearing from people about the good that you've brought into their lives because you've been able to articulate these things. Um, but I'm sure that there's so many other people who haven't written out to you who feel that way. And so I hope that you feel that love in some, well, home, in some way shape, they should perform. Well,
1: thank you. I think, uh, last thing I'll say is I think, it's a hard day, like I think to anyone, like actually last message I have, to anyone who puts that work publicly, like I know that it's terrifying. <laughs> I think about now, i like, I'm thinking about this podcast and I'm like, did I say everything right? <laughs> um, because, like is such a common thing um, but the folks who put out work like thank you for being brave in this moment because it's a really hard time to put your work out into the world when someone when you can t- spend hours on something and someone can comment like five seconds later you <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: and so
1: I know that it's really hard one of these. you all like anyone else who puts out work um, that is
0: their own creative work because I know that it's really scary but I keep doing it because it's really worthwhile so. well thank you so much CR for joining of me on PhD yeah. Viz today To our listeners, please check out her work, which is absolutely fantastic. Of course, we'll link to it. Uh, Please like, subscribe, and share this uh, episode if you enjoyed it. And take care of yourselves and perhaps think about grace in your own lives and in the lives of those around you. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Zina. I appreciate it.